This is Chaos Cast, the Chaos Community Podcast, where we share use cases and experiences with measuring open source software community health, elevating conversations about metrics, analytics, and software from the Community Health Analytics Open Source Software or Short Chaos Project to wherever you like to listen. Welcome to this episode. This podcast is sponsored by our friends at Sustain, a community of open source enthusiasts and professionals that care about the future of open source. Learn more at sustainoss.org. Joining us today are Sophia Vargas. Hi, Sophia Vargas. I'm a program manager with Google's open source programs office. I sit on a Sub team within that that focuses on research and operations. So all things metrics tend to run through our team, thinking about metrics and project health metrics around our projects we work with inside of Google. And I also work with the chaos community talking about risk metrics and have just recently joined the board. And Drew Sutev. Hello, I am Drew. I am an undergraduate student of computer engineering at Mumbai University. I was a part of Google Summer of Code 2021 with Chaos, where I worked on building a shared data resource focused on dependencies, risks, and vulnerabilities in open source software. And I'm also a DI badging reviewer for the badging initiative, which I find super cool. Welcome, Sophia and Dhruv. So let's get started talking about risk and Dhruv's background. Sophia, I think you may have some questions. Yeah, I wanted to just kind of start with the basics and understand your path to open source. When did you start working on an open source project and how did you find out about it? So open source in general, I started with contributing to my friend's project during Hacktoberfest 2020. Everyone does that for the t-shirts. And Chaos was actually the first community that I got involved with and has been Amazing. So initially, if you ask me the way I entered chaos is a friend of mine suggested me chaos said that he finds it really cool. And let's say I agree totally. And yeah, so I started attending all the meetings to figure out what's happening. And that's how I got started. What about chaos? Did you think was cool or do you still think is cool? Because it is a cool project. It is initially when I read about community, I mean, Analysis of open source in general, I just thought about analyzing GitHub commits and what's going on in the project. But when I went to the first meeting, which was value working group, people were discussing about a metric called share of voice. I was like, what is this? So it was like very interesting to see that the metrics are so deep and we look at measuring so many different things other than what's happening in the code and in general, I found like metrics to be super interesting. So, metrics are interesting. So you like measuring people or measuring health? Do we get to be part of the lab test, Drew? I, of course, think measuring things is cool as well. And I like to do that. I'm just curious when I talk with students, oftentimes the things that they mention as cool include games, video game development, playing video games. And what about measurement and analytics is lighting your fire. What is it about this field? So to be honest, even I play games, <laughs> I'm <laughs> hanging out on Discord a lot. <laughs> so about 
measuring since I mentioned that Chaos was just I see, the first community that I was part of. And when I looked at the metrics, I, I didn't even know that these things existed in open source. Initially, I never thought there are things like non-code contributions. I just thought open source as place where there is like free software and free code. It was like, A, it existed, B, we are measuring it and we are measuring it quite accurately. And it was also the deep thinking that went behind developing those metrics in the value working group. I remember my first meeting and the way they were discussing the share of voice metric. Now it's the name's different. I think organizational influence or impact. But even like the things that they were thinking of that what could be a part of that organization's impact was, I found it really cool and the way we measure it. It sounds like the turn that you made was that being part of an open source project is not only about the code, that it's about understanding the community. And it sounds like participating in the chaos community was part of the motivation for you. That you found it kind of a cool place to be with cool people. Yeah, people are super cool. Chaos. I think that's a really interesting discovery because I think you've seen that as sort of someone who's relatively new to that space. But I think there's also that same realization happening with people that are more established in the space where open source was a lot about the software and what you could create in these spaces. But the more that, say, I focus on project health metrics and various ways to define which metrics we should actually be tracking. There's so many things you can measure now that You've been working with the Chaos Project. We have, uh, Sean, you know our total metrics count right now? It's in the 70s. Yeah, there's, there's so many different things. And those are just the ones that we've curated as an organization. But really focusing in on the ones that are meaningful or impactful for the goals that you're trying to achieve. Often we end up focusing on the ones around people because it's really about maintaining the community around the projects and keeping those alive and thriving. So I really appreciate hearing your journey and your discovery of that, that it's also taken others some time to, to figure out and understand what that means to them and why it's important to them. I wanted to talk a little bit about your specific project that you did with us. And I wanted to know, can you explain a little bit about what that was, the proposal? Sorry, this is a Google Summer Code project, I believe. So let us know what that was. To be honest, I never knew a lot about Google Summer of Code before I got to know in the process when I think I was in one of Augur's workshops. And it came up that an issue that was related to a worker that was built by a previous Google Summer of Code student. And then I read about Google Summer of Code and got to know about it. So I think if you ask me in general, how I got to know about what Chaos does is initially I used to attend all the meetings, all working group meetings that were okay with my time zone. And one time what happened was in an app ecosystem working group meeting, no one showed up. It was just Matt Snell and me. So that was like the first time I had someone from chaos. So I just punched out all my questions into him and he was really calm and <laughs> I answered all of them. And that's where I got to know how I should proceed with it and about things about Augur because he has been a contributor to Augur. And then I started attending workshops and Augur hackathons. I remember it was like really cool. But I would also say that I learned a lot about Augur by actually looking into the issues and trying to solve them. And But of course, hackathons and workshops were super, super, super helpful to get me started. 
So you did the hackathons, but what was your project? What did your project accomplish? Yeah. So of course, my project was divided into two parts. So one was implementing OSSF scorecard in Augur. Also, OSSF scorecard runs like a bunch of tests and gives you a score about a repository. So we have to write some kind of sub-process that calls assets the environment and calls the scorecard project for that particular repository. And the second part was building a new worker for Libier. So giving you a little context. So Libier is basically a concept to tell you how updated your dependencies are. So currently Libier supports NPM, PyPy and packages very soon. So you took a risk metric that we developed Libier and you took an OSSF scorecard, OSSF. I feel like I'm adding an extra F, but I don't think an, S, an extra S, but I don't think I am. There's two S's, O-S-S-F, scorecard, which is an evolving set of tools that give you a, I guess I'd call it more of a formative score than a concrete number in each case. And one of the great things about, or one of the useful things that you did is you recognized that that scorecard was constantly evolving. And so that data gets stored in JSON format. So. However, the scorecard continues to evolve or future-proof in a very meaningful way. And by developing the scorecard, I think this was thing that came up later up, but I got to know that, you know, just in like few days, some scores, metrics changed and we had particular column for every metric. And then we designed our database table for that. The way it's going to store, I think that made it really future-proof. So one of the, the topics that we have a lot in our own project health tracking is understanding how newcomers get involved in the project and what keeps them engaged and helps them to continue to learn more and know where to contribute or know how to contribute. And so it, it's been interesting learning about your path from first learning about chaos and coming and doing meetings. And you mentioned hackathons and impromptu one-on-one with Matt Snell, which I, I love. Thank you, Matt. Also reviewing issues. I like that also as a comment of a way to better understand a specific area of the project. I'm curious, as you started working with the Augur team, were there other kinds of resources or artifacts that were helpful to you to better understand either the software components or more about how chaos was structured or how we did work or how we do work? I'm just kind of curious, are there other things we haven't listed that were helpful to you to get to know us as a both in organization and a set of output. Yeah. So if you want to know about chaos, I think community handbook is an amazing place. I don't know why I never got to know about it in my first week when I got to know about the handbook when I was pretty clear that what chaos does, but it's an amazing place to get started. I think about Augur specifically, the meetings that I did with Sean, they helped me a lot in solving my doubts and understanding the way the workers should be, the way the things work and the way things have to work. Well, thank you, Sean, for your mentorship, because it seems like that was a big part of onboarding through successfully into the project. Yeah, I appreciate that shout out. It's hard to know what's going to work and doing those hackathon kinds of events last year during Google Summer of Code and beyond was an idea. And I honestly wasn't sure how much of an impact it had. So hearing Drew's story that it did, in fact, have an impact on him is motivating for maybe, oh, we should do that again and maybe do it 
on the behalf of all chaos software, including Grimoire Lab and Augur as well. That's a good insight. Thank you, Drew. I do want to connect this and if I, I'll connect it with the show notes too, so that all of our references are in the same place. I do remember reading a research article that actually was trying to evaluate the impact of hackathons on open source projects and whether or not they were a worthwhile investment because they do take a lot of time and effort to put on from both a production and just an event perspective, not to mention all of the long tail logistics and actually running and putting together content and effectively running the session. And so there was sort of, I'm going to say conflicting, but just sort of not all hackathons were successful from the sense of maintaining contributors or also developing code that ended up being used in the project versus a lot of it ended up just being more as an effective onboarding tool to understanding the process and the technology versus creating net new code or net new contributions to the project. So it's great to hear an example where I think both of those things were accomplished in this scenario, but I think it comes back down to your experience outside of just the hackathon. I think that's one part of it, but then maybe the insights for those that are thinking about hackathons and the tool as a tool have to think a little bit more about what comes before and after, how to keep people engaged and provide continued support and mentorship after just this one specific event that could be a great way to introduce the context, but that only provides one experience and not necessarily support to continue engaging. I think that's a really good point. Without Google Summer of Code, I don't think that we would have been able to engage Drew to the extent that he was part of the project because he would have limited time available to him without that support. And so one of the really great things about Google Summer of Code has been the ongoing contributions from students who got a really deep head start through that program. And Drew is one of the half a dozen students who've been with us for at least a year. And some have been with us for three years at this point. And just to see that, that impact is, I think, really important for Chaos and for Augur and Grimoire Lab. Grimoire Lab has hired a couple of Google Summer of Code students, and I don't think any of that's possible without the Google Summer of Code. So, And I also wanted to say that, of course, about Sophia's point, that I think the weekly meetings are super cool, apart from the hackathons, as you feel continuously connected to the community. And so that also keeps you going with the project. Yeah, I think it's that feeling part of something that maybe resonates with people who are new to open source and what is the context? Why am I here? Why do people care about this? Does anyone care about this? I think when you're on a community call in chaos, you know that there are people who care about this and are thinking about it really deeply, which for a newcomer, I can imagine would be a little bit mind blowing. Metrics for open source software health might be something that you thought, well, maybe this is interesting. I'm sure there are a ton of really interesting, thoughtful people trying to create these metrics and apply them in specific contexts. So I have more of a, a question here because I, I started working with open source projects as a professional outside of the past education stages in my life. Not to say that I will never return to an academic institution, but I'm curious your experience as a student in terms of if you're thinking about the work and experience in open source, are there any corollaries that you can draw for maybe other students that are considering working in open source and Kind of what should they expect from sort of a workload and a commitment if they don't have the construct of a work and a professional life, but in sort of a context of you're in school, how did you think about time management and 
how to volunteer your time in this space as it related to balancing your own academic calendar. I think Google's summer of code is comes at a pretty good time where most of the students are having their summer break. So that is super great. But if I have to talk to other students, I would say, yeah, I had like a couple of examinations in like between, but it is totally manageable. And I did talk to Sean about, you know, this is a week that I think there were a couple of weeks where there was not much progress, but eventually with the project, it works. So, and yeah, if your students, I would highly, highly recommend to be a part of an open source project and a community. It just enhances your experience as a student and you get to learn a lot. You get to know about stuff that I never knew existed. So yeah, like for example, I never knew dependencies was such a big deal before joining my first risk working group call and everyone on risk working group were like super, super enthusiastic people <laughs> talking about dependencies. And I was like, what? What's happening? Dependencies are super important. And there, that was a very long conversation within the risk working group. We, we started on that for a long time. I think it's interesting to hear that chaos and the consideration of risk was such a motivator. I think the other thing, when I think about the Google Summer of Code, and it's interesting how I've nearly forgotten, but the last two summers, we certainly have had to make in-time adaptations to different pandemic-related matters and stress. In 2020, we had a number of students who had exams that went through the summer. And so we had to sort of modify the schedule for that. And in 2021, there was a lot of global pandemic still happening and impacting the societies that our students were in. So it was certainly a nonlinear process the last two summers when compared with the two before that. Guess what I'm hearing for potential mentors and projects thinking about working with students, be flexible. And I think to the students, I'm hearing be upfront about your schedule and conditions. I think knowing that academic calendars are a lot more rigid than potentially professional calendar, maybe not as much depending on what you do, but just bringing your whole self to that space and allowing, sharing what you need and how you can be constructive in this space without it interfering with your, the rest of your life. I think it, it sounds like Drew, you were able to make space for this and the project was able to take advantage of your time when you were available and just sort of being, being flexible and knowing that while we do have scheduled meetings, they're working in open source communities can be very much about the time that you have and the time that you're willing to bring to the project. And knowing that, that if that's all you have, we're still happy to have you and we can find something for you to do. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I loved your comment too about just learning about new things. I've heard a lot of comments around open source being a great way to learn new skills, learn new tool sets, get familiar with technical areas that you might not have been exposed through through academic or professional and so this is an opportunity in a, a low-risk environment to try something out and learn something new. Then I, I loved your comment that it's not just about learning tech, it's also about learning what people are talking about in industry. The discussion of dependencies and risk and supply chain security has been a very hot topic in the last year and with clearly some very prominent incidents like Log4J at the end of last year. This has been a very real, a very real discussion with real impact for anyone who interacts with, well, in this case, the Java community. So it, it can be an opportunity for you to get exposure to those sorts of things that you might not have seen or been exposed to in a purely academic environment or even in, an, in a smaller professional community. 
And I think just after I finished my project, these things started popping up, the malicious packages and by the UA parser incident. And so I don't know if I started following it late, but I think it is like super interesting and should be talked about a lot more, the open source security in general. While open source software today is powering critical infrastructure, the open source ecosystem as a whole is rapidly changing, facing challenges for governance, maintenance, maintainer burnout, funding, marketing, and more. Are you concerned about these things for your open source software too? Well, in the Sustain community, we discuss these challenges and share solutions for how to sustain open source in the long haul. We meet once per year in person, and the rest of the time we keep the fire burning in our discourse forum. Join our conversations at sustainoss.org and sustainoss on Twitter. So, Drew, you did a number of pieces of Augur that looked at metrics the risk working group had identified as important, what they thought of as the low-hanging fruit, the kind of visibility that most open source program offices and open source project maintainers cannot see right now. So if I'm an open source program officer, OSPO, I may have 11,000 projects that impact my infrastructure. I know of particular cases where it's more and less than that number. And understanding where the dependency risks lies is a very difficult thing to do. And the software that you built into Augur makes this dependency tree within thousands of open source projects visible to an OSPO. It can make an individual project maintainer's dependency tree visible where it's otherwise not terribly visible. And especially what's not visible is how in date or out of date specific dependencies are. And what is the relationship between those dependencies and the most recent published release of a package? So it's a very important space because we want to understand these dependencies and where there might be risk. And I've noticed like the two of you have that this has become much more sort of top of mind in open source over the past year to two years. And I'm wondering what about right now is making that so important because certainly software dependencies did not appear in the last year or two. They've been around since the dawn of open source, I believe. Why now? Why are dependencies so important right now? The security space is constantly evolving. The threat landscape is constantly evolving. And I think our traditional methods or evolving methods have gotten more robust and more sophisticated, but just amount of dependencies that we have in our software, and especially as open source software continues to become a larger and larger component in so many people's infrastructure, services, and tools that it is just a larger bucket of unknown, but not as much visibility, but things that you bring in, but do you know the things that they're bringing in and thus? And I think it's one of those things that the knowledge was maybe aware, but not necessarily completely transparent about what all the various pieces are. And so it becomes a very, it's essentially the new attack surface, or at least the new attack <laughs> surface du jour in the security yeah. community, because it is fairly unknown and could have, depending on what the motivations are for these individuals, the potential impact is massive in terms of the amount of folks that use these individual packages that are just embedded in so many different systems. So I think it's a combination of the popularity of open source tooling and software, as well as just the 
evolution of security techniques, approaches, and frameworks in the rest of the environment that have continued to improve. So this is now where attackers are looking in terms of where they still have a potential to permeate and to infiltrate. Are there specific attack success stories? If one can think of them as success stories, maybe attack failure stories from an infrastructure perspective, but certainly the attackers felt emboldened by some set of events or compromises over the last number of years that have been visible. I don't know if there's anything in particular that triggered the risk and security community to start looking at this. Certainly the things that come to my mind are the Equifax breach, which was dependent on struts and an old version of struts at that, speaking to the Libier metric that we released. And I recall, I don't know if it was last summer or the summer before, time has lost all meaning, but there was an infrastructure breach in the U.S. on the East Coast related to the distribution of gasoline that drew some attention to software risk. Solar winds. It was a proprietary tool, but used by a lot of organizations and government agencies. So I don't recall the specifics as to the vulnerability itself, but it was in their own proprietary solution. So it wasn't open source specifically, but still software and usage of software. So if you abstract dependencies in in terms of all the things, that was a prominent tool that many organizations depended on. I always feel like I come back to Heartbleed. Heartbleed, Uh, yeah. That was was quite, I don't want to say fundamental, but just in terms of its impact and potential impact was unprecedented at the time in terms of discovering that potential vulnerability. That was the SSL, open SSL security breach that was embedded in web browsers for years before the vulnerability was identified. One of the use cases that we have for demonstrating why software activity metrics can tell a story is from Heartbleed, where we saw years of non-maintenance on it and very little attention gathered to it. And then we saw the moment in time when there was a public identification of the Heartbleed problem. And all of a sudden, there was an enormous amount of effort put into the OpenSSL code base in terms of software development activity and repair. So we can see what vulnerabilities are identified. The open source community does respond with a sort of an asymmetric, enormous effort to fix the identified hole. I think think there must be somewhere embedded in the culture of open source, a pride in security and stability. And if something is identified as being not that, it seems to be quickly fixed once the identification occurs. And so perhaps these tools are about identifying risk and making them visible. I agree, but I, I think that's one part of it. I think the other comment that you made earlier around version age, where if we look at something like even the most recent incident of Lock4j, the newer versions of it fixed the issue and it came out within a week or maybe less than that. And it was available to be updated. But I'm recalling a conversation I had on another Chaos Cast with the founder of Scarve Avi Press, and it is an analytics tool that can provide analytics to project maintainers around usage and download of their tools, of their software from various distributions. And I like to ask any sort of analytics tool provider, what did you learn that you weren't expecting to learn when you made this? And his comment was the number of old versions in use and the length that it takes for people to upgrade. 
as just sort of a, a general fact, it, there are so many old and outdated versions of tools embedded in people's software stacks and infrastructure tools such that even if there are these kinds of vulnerabilities and the community responds uh, in a fairly timely manner and offers a fix, you as the user still have to go back and update it and be cognizant of the versions that you have running in your infrastructure and in your software stack. So I think it's sort of a two-part responsibility. These are not pushes that are coming from proprietary tools. You have some responsibility as the person who assembled all these things to ensure that the versions you're using are in fact up to date and taking advantage of the latest patches. That's really critical. I know from the perspective of Augur, being part of these conversations has made me extremely attentive to version updates inside of our Python package usage, such that at least three times a year, I go through and look to see if the most current versions will still lead to functioning software. And I upgrade wherever there isn't a problem, which is usually, honestly, in most cases, there isn't a problem keeping it current. We specify the version of the releases maintainers because we then have a known canonical functional piece of software that isn't going to break if the latest version is updated. That's why we specify the version. But once you do that, if you don't keep it up to date, it, it quickly falls out of date. So Drew, this is what you helps others to see <laughs> through your implementation of the Libier metric. So just to, to think a little bit about how this particular metric and its availability through Augur can help organizations manage their own dependency risk. So thank you for that work and for bringing that tool to more individuals and more projects and organizations. I want to come back to your experience a bit. I know thinking about you have a bright future ahead of you. What are you excited about? <laughs> it could be in chaos. It could be in other areas of open source. I'm just kind of curious now that you've had this experience in both academic as well as, I want to say a toe into the industry because that's a very broad ecosystem. But what excites you either in the project or in neighboring concepts? So if you're asking about my plans, to be honest, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. <laughs> I'm just figuring out. But one thing which I am really wanting to do for a long time is to get back into the metric discussions in working group, which I found super interesting. And of course, start attending the badging meetings again. I've been missing them for a couple of months now. And I've found a list of amazing open source projects that align with my interests. And I think now every project, the way I'm seeing, they are super interested in the security part of it and that's where I'm interested too. So I, I kind of hang out in their issue section and maybe we should try this, we should try that. How are you discovering these projects? I think some of the projects that I saw, I did not apply to. Some of them were in LFX mentorship program and I saw few in like some hackathons and you know I'm also interested in data. So I think Right now, Soda Code is also going on. So yeah, that's how I found it. I keep looking for them. And of course, Twitter is a nice place. There's amazing community. They are sharing their tips on open source and security and like usually saving those tweets. Which tweets are those, Drew? I want to make sure to add them to the show notes. So there were like a couple of, I mean, I just forgot his name. My, my favorite security tweeter while you're looking it up is Swift on Security which is a, an account that purports to be Taylor Swift's comments on security. And they actually 
produce a number of really interesting tweets, but always with the comic sidebar of this is coming from pop singer Taylor Swift. The person that I followed, his name was Sam Stephen, has project or something like that. So I but he keeps posting about open source security in general. So I love reading his tweets. I was just writing those down. So I'm just thinking about newer projects and how they can think about just increasing their awareness. Where should they go to find potential users and contributors? And it sounds like being vocal about it on Twitter, attending conferences, being associated with, maybe don't have to be within the foundation, but if you can work with foundation or individual mentorship programs or just ways to get your name and your project out there. And so talk about it, be public. If that's something that you want to do, I'm not saying that every project is out there trying to recruit, but there are many that are, or at least trying to be more visible in these spaces. So I hope some of that is helpful to others that are thinking about trying to increase visibility of their work and visibility of their community. Okay, Drew, so as we're winding down, I am curious if you have any advice for either folks that are new to open source or students looking to explore the vast ecosystem that is open source, what advice do you have for them? So one common advice would be to attend meetings if they're having it. And if you're attending meetings to make sure you maybe introduce yourself, because when I attended it, I was too shy to let anyone know that I existed. But it was like Vinod, Matt G and Don from Common Working Group, they made me unmute and introduced myself and asked my opinions on the metrics. But I think increasing usage of Slack and other platforms, it's getting pretty easy. Another thing would be if you're looking for code contributions in general, I highly suggest to first read about what the project does and then clone it and build it and try experimenting with it and then go to the issues section. I think good first issues are a great place to get started. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's some really good advice and something to reiterate as someone who's now been part of this community for over a year. I think I always value the new perspective. I think it's very easy to get stuck in your own echo chamber of the same folks and the same backgrounds. And I think the more new folks that come into the conversation, even without a lot of context, even if they think it's not a relevant question because they're afraid they don't know enough, but just asking the question, being there, providing a new experience, a new mind on the problem. It's incredibly helpful. It helps us that have been here for a longer period to be more open-minded to see more possibilities that perhaps we were blind to before. So thank you for, for participating and for staying engaged in our community. Yeah, thank you for making me a part of the community. I love being chaos. I appreciate it as well, Drew. Our last part of every chaos cast is the value adds. So something that brought value, joy, or meaning to your life recently. I'll go first. For me, it's been the emergence of Discord. A year ago or two years ago, Slack, everybody used it. Everybody was using it. All of my students had Slack running. In the last year, Discord seems to have emerged as every student is running Discord all the time. And Discord, for those of you who don't know, comes out of the online gaming universe where people will get online and play video games, presumably most of them based on Disney's Frozen franchise. And they play these video games and they're meanwhile, they're on a headset with a microphone communicating with all of the other people who are on their team and competing against some other team in a Frozen-based video game of some sort. So 
it's just been interesting to me to see how different technologies kind of overcome youth in a wave. It takes forever for folks that are faculty members to identify and adapt new technologies, but our students can roll us with them in a matter of months. And so that is, that is my value add is discord. Okay. I'll, I'll go back. I got a weird one because it was not recognized for me as a value add until about maybe two or three days ago. So for those who know me personally, I have two cats that are quite vocal and pushy and in your space all the time. And they are not afraid of waking up in the morning when they want attention. And over the last month or so, our cat has been crying earlier and earlier. And we have been just, I mean, it's just a pain in the butt when you wake up and you have left sleep and we've been upset about it. And then we put it together that our cat has been adjusting us to daylight savings time. They've been waking up earlier with the sun and realizing that their own internal clocks have actually been adjusting with the change of the schedule. Whereas the rest of us humans, we wait for that awful day when we set our clocks back and have to force ourselves to be an hour different than when we were before. So we, we put it together that our cats have been waking us up ahead of daylight savings time to the point where he started crying at 6.45 today instead of in the sevens. And we are, I think, are changing the clocks this weekend. Yeah, spring forward. I yeah. Lose an um, hour this weekend. If you have animals that wake you up and you are upset with them waking up earlier and earlier, you might recognize the fact that they are actually helping you to adjust your time with daylight savings time because their internal clocks apparently are a lot more sensitive than my own. They're looking at the sunrise because they can't read the clock. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. I think there's a lot more sophistication there under the surface. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe cats designed a Stonehenge. Humans just carried out their bidding. It was the cats who actually designed it and came they're, up with it. They're, they're really in control is what, I, what I'm hearing from you, Sean. Stay tuned for our Chaos Catspiracy podcast coming to a <laughs> channel near you soon. True value adds. So uh, value add for me was we had a festival a few days back. It was called Mahashivratri. So it is a super fun festival. The only thing is you don't sleep that night. It was actually trending on Twitter. The hashtag you snooze, you lose. Uh, so, so keep you awake. There are like dance performances, singing performances from artists all over the world, cultural performances, of course, since it's a Mahashivratri, so people meditate. And But it's like a bunch of fun events packed in one night, jam-packed in one night. And you might feel a little tired next morning, but it's totally worth it. I think everyone should experience Mahashivratri once. It sounds a little like Mardi Gras in the Western tradition. What is being celebrated that you are up all night? So it's actually one thing, which is it's said that the Earth's relation at that night with the sun and moon is such that there is a natural upsurge of energy. So if you keep your spine erect, so you're not even allowed to lie down, but you should not sleep, you should not lie down, you should either stand, sit, dance, whatever you want to do, but you should take advantage of that upsurge. So that's what uh-huh. is I would like to know when this upsurge is so that I can take advantage of it the next time that it happens. I think you, you can also visit India sometime. It's like super fun that night. It's <laughs> that sounds like fun. It gives me a reason to visit India. Well, thank you, Sophia. Thank you, Drew, for joining us on this podcast today. 
To stay up to date on future episodes, subscribe for free to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. Share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. If you have ideas for future episodes or topics or would like to come on as a guest, please email us at podcast at chaos. That's with two S's dot community. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Until next time, your chaos community says bye-bye.